Hello there, and welcome back to the KedCast. I'm Ethan, and today we're on a bit of a doozy. We're on a bit of a journey. Just follow me on this journey. This is a spiel I usually give in parts quite often, but here's like the full synthesis. Also, this is theological opinion, just something to think about. Much of this is not dogmatically defined. First, we're going to talk about the problem of evil and human suffering in a very simplified way. The counterclaim goes something like this. You Christians believe in an all-good, all-knowing God who loves us. But when I look around the world, all I see is pain and suffering. Evils from other humans like murder and stealing, and even evils from nature like volcanoes and hurricanes. If God was all good, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Intuitively and logically speaking, if God is all good, we wouldn't see this. However, we do see this, therefore God does not exist. At least not your all-good Christian God. And at that point, whatever God does exist, that, that would even allow this to exist, is a non-good God who doesn't matter, and I really shouldn't believe in him. This argument is certainly one that can hit close to home. We all experience hardship and suffering and how we can reconcile that with an all-good God who loves us. I think the first thing to note is that this isn't the only argument for or against the existence of God. There are many other claims from philosophical, ontological, historical claims about God's existence based on empirical data. And also assessing any claim is weighing, uh, is weighing against its, its, counter, its counterclaim. So this is just one facet of, of the larger argument of God's existence. But also, if God does exist, based on some of these previous claims, then this logic chain uh, previously presented of we see the evils all God wouldn't have these evils, therefore all God doesn't exist. This, if it's false, then this logic chain must be false. But at what premise does it fail? One of the Catholic responses to this is to say that God, who, who doesn't cause evil, rather he permits it, does so because he respects our free will as human beings. And two, that any evils that do occur, God can bring about a greater good. So first, God gave us free will in order to freely choose him. And with that, we humans, as a consequence, could choose to turn away. Adam and Eve did an oopsie, but God still had a plan and permits this evil so we can, despite this, choose to come back with him, choose to come back to him. We can, like, choose to love, and that's why God gives us free will. And secondly, God permits evil in order to bring about a greater good. So let's go back to the main claim uh, for the problem of evil. It goes something like this. If evil exists, then God does not exist. Evil exists, therefore God does not exist. However, this assumes that evils cannot be justified. However, I think we can all agree that there exists evils that are justified. For instance, the pain of burning my hand on a hot stove isn't unjustified. It exists to protect me. So what evils then would justify this? Many reframe to say that, oh, you need gratuitous evil because I think everyone can, can, would concede the fact that the, the, the fact that someone burns their hand, that evil is justified. So it doesn't, it doesn't fit the, the, the logical like series. So they'll say something like gratuitous evils mean, mean that God does not exist. Evils about which a greater good cannot be brought about. And the Catholic response to this is to say that uh, it is not inconsistent that an all-knowing God who can bring about good through my hand burning uh, cannot also bring about good through larger evils, some evils that may seem gratuitous or out of scope, or that greater good cannot be brought about in like larger evils in general. Also, tying that back to the point about free will, one greater, one greater good that God can work is that if we choose God, uh, we go to heaven, and like the evils on earth are outweighed by the eternal good of eternal happiness in the kingdom of heaven. So that can be one way that greater good uh, is brought about. But also, yeah, the, the main point is, given that other arguments for God's existence work, then to say that, oh, if God is in fact all-knowing and all-good, then it's, it's a, it's a counterexample. It disproves the fact that uh, that it could not be for a greater good. Because if God truly does know everything, then he, he, he knows what's up. He knows that he can bring about a greater good. And my knowledge is very limited, because uh, like even a child doesn't understand why the, why the burning of the hand uh, is meant to protect them. So too, we might understand why larger evils can bring about a greater good, or that they even could, but that doesn't mean that they can't. And 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 for that reason, uh, that that serves as an adequate counterexample. Okay, so one might say, okay, humans have free will to freely choose God; they they can be rewarded in heaven. 
uh, which can be another greater good. But surely, surely, the pain and suffering experienced by animals must be a gratuitous evil that an all-good God could not allow. Because animals don't have free will, animals don't go to heaven, and they can't have this quote-unquote repayment for their sufferings by being in heaven, by being happy in heaven. So one, what, so first, whether or not animals go to heaven isn't a settled thing. Uh, animals are not rational creatures created in the image and likeness of God, but it's not heretical for me to say that animals might not not go to heaven. Uh, it would certainly be different than what we, anim- than what we humans call heaven. Certainly, animals don't have free will and are distinct in value and dignity for humans. Uh, animals shouldn't be given value uh, that, that's only due to persons. Catechism says this. Uh, but yeah, it, it would seem that a deer growing up only to get hit by a car feels like that's lots of pain and that's unnecessary in the world. However, I think like if you uh, burn my hand on the stove example is, is a good response because uh, if we imagine a deer which doesn't feel pain, either one, like one that isn't a deer for very long, we know that humans and animals uh, who are born who can't experience uh, pain don't survive for very long at all. Or two, uh, the whole world is like static and you have like invincible deer that don't die. In which case, I think that's indistinguishable from like a rock. So that's like, why don't we just live in a world where no life forms exist at all? Because then that would decrease the overall suffering. Yeah, like by that claim, uh, a world in which all life forms are like wiped out is preferable to ones where they do exist and do feel suffering. Like we just wipe out all the humans so there's no more suffering. Uh, But... I guess humans do have an extra, extra justification of heaven to exist, and that outweighs. But, like, to have only humans on Earth without any any other animals, like, that doesn't seem to make sense either. And to say that, like, we should wipe out all, uh, everything because that decreases suffering also doesn't make sense because there are, like, positive goods that exist, like, especially for, like, for humans. Uh, that would mean that that's just not the case. Uh, I don't really have any additional warrants for this, but I, I'm sure they exist somewhere. Otherwise, I feel like we would all, like, extincted ourselves, uh, I mean, there are other arguments from, like, just, like, humans having dignity and other stuff, and animals having dignity as well. That would just mean that that this claim doesn't make sense. But, yeah, let's say that this... Let's say that this created world that we live in is deficient, and uh, it's not made all good, and that deer could be made better by having them suffer less. How would that even work? Uh, Animals kind of need to survive by eating plants, like deer. But then there are also other animals who need to survive by eating other animals. So it seems consistent for like the existence of animals that for animals to have pain experience, otherwise like the life cycle that that currently exists doesn't work. Also, perhaps this loops back to the idea that maybe God knows things that we can't know about how like world building works. Uh, But yeah, I I think the main takeaway is that animals feeling pain and suffering is how the animal functions. And the pain the animals feel is not a deficiency or like a bug, it's a feature. It's a means to protect the animal, and ultimately, it's there for the flourishing of said animal. And if it were not there, the animal wouldn't be an animal. It'd be like a rock that like doesn't do anything. Uh, animal pain, basically, moral of the story: animal pain is not a bug; it's a feature. Uh, and and that's because animals don't have free will. But if you if someone made the claim that, and I don't make this claim, but if someone were to make the claim, oh, animals do have free will, so that doesn't apply, then all the stuff about humans would apply that they could like potentially get heaven and they have free will, and free will is is uh, is a direct argument to uh, the existence of evil because you need to freely choose the good. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, that's part one about suffering and human suffering and animal suffering. Let's move on to part two, which is about Bayes' theorem. So uh, I'm just going to describe it to you. So uh, yeah, just follow along. Bayes' theorem is a theorem in probability that has an equation where the probability of event A happening, given the probability of event B happening, aka A given B, is the probability of B given A times the probability of A, all divided by the probability of B. But what the heck does that mean? Normally, want to do this next part. It's in person. It's more interactive. I have an expo marker and a whiteboard. But just like follow along. So let's take 
the set of numbers between one and 10, including one and 10. If I say, uh, let's say, suppose I pick a number at random. What is the probability that the number is an even number? It's one half, but why? Uh, it's because there are 10 options and five of them are, are what we're looking for. So you put the five on the top of the fraction, the numerator and the 10 on the bottom of the denominator and reducing, you get one half, uh, 0.5. But fundamentally, this question is asking, what is the proportion of the, um, uh, of the amount of numbers we are looking for, even numbers, compared to the set of numbers that we are evaluating, one to 10. Notice, I don't care about 11 through 20 because that wasn't a part of the set we were evaluating. Uh, now let's say in the same set of one through 10, what is the probability that a number is divisible by three? It's three tenths because there are three numbers divisible by three, three, six, and nine. And the set of numbers we're evaluating is 10, one through 10. Uh, we don't care about 11 to 20 because that wasn't the set we were evaluating. So fundamentally it's the number given in this, in this set we're evaluating, the numbers we care about or the numbers we're looking for over the numbers that we care about. Okay, so let's, uh, that's main, that's like probability. Let's look at conditional probability. So let us suppose that uh, we'll take the same one through 10. Given that a number is odd, what is the probability that that number is divisible by three? Many of us intuitively go, oh, that's two fifths. Uh, but let's break down what's happening here. So there are two questions. What are we looking for? And what is the set we're evaluating? So we are given that the number is odd. So the set we're evaluating is one, three, five, seven, nine. And there's five of them. And you could say, oh, what are we looking for? We're looking for uh, divisible by three. So we just said like three, six, nine, there's three of them, three over five. However, we don't count the six. Why not? Because when we say divisible by three, given that it's odd, it also needs to be odd and six isn't odd. So B given A is the, like the, so if, so if let's say B given A represents the probability of something that is A, B and A over the probability of A. That is to say something that is odd and divisible by three over the, over the, the values that are odd, which is why we don't count the six. That means another way we can write B and A is the probability of B given A times the prob. So next, another way we can write B and A is the probability of B given A times the probability of A. Or in our case, the probability of a number being odd and divisible by three is the same as the multiplication of the probability that a number is divisible by three, three tenths, multiplied by the probability that given that a number is divisible by three, the probability that it is odd, which is two thirds, because in three, six, nine, three and nine are odd and six is not, so two thirds. And two thirds times three tenths is two tenths, which is uh, like the, the original, uh, which, which is, gives us the value that we want because the three kind of can't, uh, three cancels on the top and the bottom. Uh, but Ethan, why do we expand this out? Why are we saying that B and A can be written as the probability of uh, B given A times the probability of A uh, or, or even, even the other, other way around? Because sometimes uh, we're not given all of like the probabilities and we're given like bits and pieces of it. We're not giving B and A, we're given individual probabilities like B given A and the probability of A independently of each other. And we need to like assemble them together in like a problem, for instance. So if we kind of substitute that out, uh, this is what gives us Bayes' theorem. Uh, if we substitute out the fact that like the probability of A given B equals the probability of A and B over the probability of B, and you sub that out of the probability of B and A is equal to the probability of A given B times the probability of A, then once you sub all of that out, you get Bayes' theorem, which is, as I said earlier, the probability of A given B is the probability of B given A times the probability of A all over the probability of B. So in our example, given that a number is odd, the probability of it being divisible by three is equivalent to the stuff we're looking for, which is odd and divisible by three, which is, which is given as divided by three, the probability of odd times the probability of odd, all over the set we are evaluating, which is the probability of odd. 
and voila, that's two-fifths. So summary, probability is simply the stuff we're looking for divided by the set we are evaluating. Even numbers over 1 through 10, and odd and divisible by three numbers over the odd numbers. Okay, but what specifically is Bayes' theorem? And like, how do I how do I use it? So we have the formula. I've shown you why it's true and kind of why it checks out with like this odd example. But uh, I think there's another example that works really well. And it's a very classic Bayes' theorem uh, problem to, to to illustrate like how Bayes' theorem works, especially with an incomplete set of data and really allows us to use the theorem to derive the useful probability measures. So let us suppose there exists a sickness called the flu and 2% of the population has the flu. Let us suppose there is a flu test and you can take a flu test. And if you administer a flu test to someone, it can either come out positive or negative. If you have the flu, there's a 95% chance the test correctly comes back positive and a 5% chance that it comes back negative. Let us then suppose that if someone does have the flu, they take a flu test, there's a 90% chance it will correctly say negative and a 10% chance that it gives a false positive. Sorry, the, the second example was if you don't have the flu. So the question is, I take a flu test not knowing whether or not I have the flu and it reads positive. What is the probability that I'm a random, because I'm just a random person, that I actually have the flu? Like, like we're not evaluating systems, symptoms. Uh, like, what's the probability, just, I'm a random guy, that it's a true positive? So the approach to this is to ask yourselves, what is the set we are evaluating and what is the set we're looking for? So given a positive test, what is the probability of having the flu? So the set we're looking for is where, uh, is where there are positive tests, because uh, given that it's a positive test. And within that, we want the positive test where the person has the flu. So referring back to our previous like A's and B's, B would be a positive flu reading and A would be actually having the flu. So what is the probability that I have a positive flu reading that is probability of B? Uh, so we know that there are two ways to have a positive flu reading. You can either have the flu and test positive or not have the flu and test a false positive. Uh, but what's the probability of this? So it's the, so the probability that of someone actually having the flu is just the sum of the probabilities of you having the test having the flu and testing positive and not having the flu and testing false positive are the ways to get a positive test. So the probability that uh, of a positive test, probability of B, which is what we're dividing everything by, so what we're looking for, or it's the set that we're evaluating, would just be 2% of the population having the flu times 95% uh, chance of correct positive plus 98% of population not having the flu times 10% of, of a false positive gives you 11.7% of the population would test positive. That's the denominator, the set we are evaluating in the conditional. So then let's look at the numerator. We want people who actually have the flu and actually test positive because uh, that's what we're looking for, which is 2% of the people times 98% of the true positive, the value that also known as the probability of positive test given that they have the flu because we didn't care about the people who don't have the flu for this numerator calculation because that's not what we're looking for. And that gives us 1.9% of the population, which would is the number of people that would correctly test positive for the flu given that the number of people infected is 2%, which sounds pretty good, right? Uh, so 2% of people have the flu and 1.9% of the people... Uh, are told, who have the flu, are told that they do have the flu if they, they take a test. Well, uh, not so fast. Let's divide this 1.9 by this 11.7, which represents, uh, which then just gives us the probability that if you take a test and test positive, this will be the probability that you actually have the flu because it's, it's the thing we care about, having a positive test and the flu over all positive tests. And the result is 17.1%. That means that if you take a flu test in this, in this like fictional world we have, and it comes back positive, there's a 17.1% chance that you actually have the flu and an 83% chance that you do not have the flu and it gave you a positive. This seems so high and the numbers at the beginning seem so reasonable. Uh, why? It's because a 10% chance of a false positive when you don't have the flu is really, really high combined with the fact that 98% of the population don't have the flu 
uh, it's kind of interesting, which is why whenever you design, like, especially tests for whether or not someone has a disease, because most people don't have the disease, you need the, the rate of false positive to be really, really low. Otherwise, most of the positives that exist are going to be false positive because so many more people who don't have the disease exist than people who do. Um, but yeah, that's a base theorem. Also, uh, also known as you take the stuff you care about and you divide it by the stuff you're evaluating. This will be important. This base theorem concept will be important later. Uh, there's a reason I explained all of this. Uh, it probably didn't need as long of an explanation, but, but here we are. So let's get into part three. Breakups hurt. There was once something that was good and you no longer have it. But let us suppose together that we wanted to make it so that breakups didn't hurt. How would we design and go about this concept? So what would we do in entering or while in a committed romantic relationship to make it so a breakup would no longer hurt? Uh, let us suppose that a breakup is what this relationship is, is going to come to. Uh, so for one, hurt can come from in the form of you did something wrong to the other person. That would hurt you, but it would hurt them for various reasons. Uh, so we can mitigate that by you not doing bad or sinful things that would make the breakup hurt more with regret and pain. Uh, yeah, but also you are not the only one who could potentially initiate the hurt that could lead to a breakup. The other party could break up with you and hurt you. And, uh, or like they could hurt you and you could break up with them because of it. Like I, I, either way, th th there's, there can be hurt caused by uh, someone doing something bad. But let us suppose that you're in a good relationship and that things are going great. But let us suppose that a non-sin-based like, factor or a non-guilty, like, like it's someone's fault-based factor, like for instance, just like a, for instance, we're going to be in different cities and it's too far. And also it's the year 1697 of the Common Era, so we'll probably never see each other again. Uh, this time there was no sin cause that caused the hurt. There's only the hurt caused by just the loss of the relationship. The loss of, let's say, something very good, very holy. Uh, so we, we've identified this hurt. How do we reduce it? So one observation is that you see... Uh, is that you see people all the time that you'll never see again. It seems obvious to me that the longer you spend time with someone, the more like love you have for them, the more hurt and heartbreak in a sense you have because you can no longer be together. And this is only magnified by the fact that a romantic relationship is like very strong. It's basically an intimate kind of like friendship that is set apart from like the other relationships you have. Uh, another observation is that the more time you spend with someone, the more you know them, the more they become a part of your life and you a part of theirs. So it hurts more when this breakup occurs because there's kind of that feeling that like, oh, something's like missing from your life. Uh, therefore, it seems logical that the only way to prevent all the hurt in a breakup is to have never gotten together in the first place. Like you can't get stabbed in the heart if you never open up your heart to anyone. But is it the goal not to get hurt? And furthermore, what is the goal? What is it that we're looking for? And what is it that we want? Um, I posit this. Just as the pain of the deer is a feature and fundamentally not a bug, so too is the fact that breakups hurt. Uh, like, especially in like the in, like inherently in the independent on non-sin factors, why, why it hurts there. And parallel, it is, isn't exactly one-to-one -to, -one to like the animal deer thing. I'm not implying that romantic relationships ending and it hurting is like the best form of that specific model, like I was saying for like the, the deer. But I am saying that given that we live in a world where sin and death do exist, uh, it's the best course of action, just as it is to have an animal who feels pain for it to exist. To potentially go through the pain of heartbreak and like forming an emotional attachment, even though, even though things could go awry, because what you're trying to reach is worth it. And the fact that uh, heartbreak occurs like independently also points to another thing. Uh, so yeah, uh, what, what am I talking about? So just as the good of the existence of the deer depends on its ability to feel pain and thus survive, the point of a romantic relationship is not the degree to which one prevents himself from getting hurt. The point is to share in the divine life and love of the Trinity and to discern marriage which is an earthly sign, sacrament, that points to the heavenly reality of Christ and his bride, the church. And ultimately, that's what our lives point to, a love that never ends. So when encountered with the ending of a romantic relationship, this directly wounds in that department because our hearts were made for love eternal. And that can't be satisfied here on earth, only in the glory of the beatific vision, 
where the angels and the saints laud him gloriously forever and ever. To shut oneself off forever from the love uh, of another person for the fear of getting hurt doesn't make sense. Because in order to be loved for who you are uh, fully and completely, in all your joys, but especially in all your deepest wounds, someone else must know those wounds and thus know you. To allow someone to love you is also to allow them to know all the grimy stuff about you, the stuff they could use to destroy you. But if they choose to love, that love is true and good and beautiful and dubitably reflects the love of God because that's what God does. Loves you and all of your garbage. A weird follow-up auxiliary question that I kind of drew a distinction of when talking about the difference between the existence of animal suffering and the breakup thing being true because only because sin and death enters the world is this question. Were there breakups before the fall of Adam and Eve? An interesting question to be sure because surely if Adam and Eve did not fall, they would still would have like children and such. And that requires some form of uh, the inception of romantic relationships. So the question is, could this said inception have the logical concept of it like breaking up? Like before uh, like said union is solidified. Uh, and upon further discussion with other theologians that I know, uh, the conclusion we came to is no. Uh, breakups probably didn't exist before the fall because breakups are usually a result of either sin or because of some level of like brokenness that exists because of the fall or some like communication issue or something of that sort. And, and also uh, the main point is like before the fall, the intellect and will of Adam and Eve uh, and their like soul uh, are, are united and they have intellect power and willpower that is far beyond what we have now. And they're also like fully united into God's love. So the things like communication errors and stuff like that, like those things won't happen. So breakups, it, it, it doesn't seem consistent for the, my theologian friends and I to believe that breakups would exist before uh, the fall. And uh, yeah, I, I guess another question that gets raised up is like, if sin and death hadn't entered into the world, would animals still die? Uh, and I argued yes earlier, but I mean, there's also this other logic that like, uh, just as Christ's death on the cross has salvific effects across time, like applying to like the Blessed Virgin Mary at her conception, maybe the fall of man or the fall of the angels had its effect and is like giga the case that in the beginning it was not so. And there's some logically consistent alternative of like animals being able to exist but not experiencing pain because God knows more than me, but I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, so that's, here's, here's the final thing. So you may be asking. Uh, so I understand how the human and animal suffering part related to the breakups. What does Bayes' theorem have to do with anything? Uh, watch this. So, Breakups can hurt for one of two reasons. One individual wronged another, so it hurts. Or there are just external circumstances, so it's nobody's fault. But it hurts because we were made for love that never ends. So logic says, if you did everything right, it'll still hurt. And, that okay, and that's okay. However, if it hurts, that very much does not mean that you did it right. Because of Bayes' theorem, it is much more likely that given that ending of a relationship hurts, that someone did something wrong, and it's a fault of the actions of someone rather than no one doing anything wrong. So there is literally no other indicator of knowing that you didn't do anything wrong in a relationship towards its ending that tells you that you didn't do anything wrong in a relationship towards its ending, because whether or not it hurts has nothing to do with whether or not you did anything wrong. And if it did, it's massively skewed towards, if it does hurt, someone did something wrong. However, it can also just not hurt, in which, like... That, that, that would raise the question of like how much emotional attachment was put in. Sometimes it's appropriate to not have uh, uh, such a deep degree. Sometimes it, it isn't. But yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the entire point of this episode. The entire point of this episode is to say that the breakups, if you did relationships right, the breakup will hurt. But just because the breakup hurts does not mean you did it right. Because Bayes' theorem. There you go. Bye-bye. <laughs>